and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 12 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Adam Schwab, the co-founder and CEO of Luxury Escapes, an online marketplace for hand-picked holidays at the best prices. We discuss his background as a lawyer and how a series of businesses, starting with selling study notes on CDs in high schools, evolved into a short-term apartment rental business, then daily restaurant deals. What eventually became Luxury Escapes, which would grow from zero to $350 million in annual revenue within just five years, making it the number one fastest growing new business in Australia and winner of the Fin Review Fast Starters list. We cover Australian politics, the evolution of his business journey and his two golden rules for aspiring entrepreneurs. If you love fantastic travel deals at the best hotel destinations in the world, check out www.luxuryescapes.com. That's L-U-X-U-R-Y-E-S-C-A-P-E-S.com. So I'm here with Adam Schwab, the founder and CEO of Luxury Escapes, the winner of the uh, Fin Review Fast Starters list. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks, Derek. Great to be here. That's good. So can you tell us a bit, how did you sort of get started? What, what did you study? What was your first job? That sort of thing. Uh, I think, so myself and my co-founder, Jeremy, had, had a, in a way, a common start to entrepreneurship. And if you look at most entrepreneurs, they tend to be sort of early, most unicorn founders, which went on, unfortunately, but yet, yet <laughs> yeah. anyway, but most unicorn founders tend to be, if you look at Eileen Lee's original study, sort of 30 plus couple of male founders tertiary educated so we, t- we do fit that that build that build pretty closely uh, so we actually went to school together uh, we started our very first business when we were just finishing school uh, and so in, in our final year of school we we did a lot of uh, we had this thing called cats so in Victoria the, the big, a big assignment essentially and when you were doing the assignments we, we got a lot of benefit from looking at great assignments from previous years so you wouldn't the questions would be different the content's different but the structure and the format We'd use. So we thought, well, this was actually really valuable to us. Why don't we take this into the... And you actually buy these in paperback. So then why don't we take this into the 20th century, as it was back then, and put on a CD-ROM and we'd get our friends' cats and our cats and we'd, we'd do that. So we, we've managed to... This is in the very early days of even CD-ROM burning. So we, we end up getting uh, someone to develop this really basic program that would allow people to bring up the, the assignments on, on a menu type thing. Uh, and then we got some guy to put all the CD-ROM. So we burned it like a thousand times and we sold these at a careers fair for, for I think they were about oh, $20 each for memory uh, we sold 
in the hundreds. And then we also sold a teacher's edition, which was the same thing, but for, te- for a teacher for about $500. So that was our very first sort of foray into a business of some sort. Mm. That was sort of in 1998. Uh, and we made a few thousand bucks out of that. It was, it was nice sort of pocket money. And uh, then I went and studied law and Jeremy started commerce law. We both studied commerce law. Jeremy just did commerce. I finished law commerce. Uh, and then through university, I did the same sort of thing with my law notes. So law notes were a, a, pr- a commonly traded thing back at, in, in most law schools and still are, I'm sure, today. Mm. Uh, and I sort of made it a bit more corporatized. So, again, I put them on a CD-ROM and sold them through the law bookstore and I'm probably selling, I don't know, about 20, 30 grand worth of, of law notes until mm. uh, I eventually got shut down by the dean. So that was our, our very first forays into any sort of genuine business. Uh, then I went off to, to a big law firm called Freehills and Jeremy went off to Ains and Investment Bank and we went to sort of join the corporate world for a couple of years. Uh, and was the plan to kind of do your time in the corporate world and then get out or did you really think you would sort of make a long go at the corporate world? Uh, we didn't really have a plan. I think both of us, Jeremy probably more than me, but both of us were never natural corporate types. So I had a great time at Freehills, which is now Herbert Smith Freehills, big, great law firm, mm-hmm. top, top firm in the country. I had a really good experience there, learned a lot, great people I worked with, still a lot of great friends who, who worked there with me, but I was never going to be a naturally great lawyer. Uh, so we just came across an idea back in, I was sort of a second year lawyer back then and could have stayed, could have stayed doing that, but we thought, well, let's, let's give this a crack because you, you never know how it's going to go. Worst case, you go back to being a lawyer. Mm. So there's everything to everything gained, not much to lose. And we did that and, and obviously never went, never looked back, but uh, certainly back then it was a bit of a different era. Now entrepreneurs are... Fated isn't the right word, but entrepreneurialism is looked at relatively positively. It's called the Zuckerberg effect. So, mm. Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, and 100 other cool businesses and Uber and Airbnb. And now it's, everyone wants to do that. But back then, everyone wanted to work at a big firm, be a bank, a consulting firm, or a law firm. So it's a very different environment now to even 13, 14 years ago when we, when we left our, our respective firms. So it's, it seems now like a really logical, easy decision because that's what people do. Mm. Back then, we were, we were pretty unusual and People certainly to our faces questioned it and no doubt behind our backs questioned it. But you said sort of, so when you started the corporate world, you sort of knew you didn't fit. Can you elaborate a bit more on how you sort of realised you didn't fit and why? Oh, maybe fit's probably not the right word, but I think if you look at what we're, what, what we're best at, it's, it's finding customer demand, fulfilling that demand and running a, a good operation. And, that's, and Jeremy has good skills for strategic thinking and... and moving the business in a certain direction and my skill is in, in operating and, and also tactical and, and a bit of strategy. So if you look at that, that's, that's not necessarily compatible with being an M&A lawyer. So mm. being an M&A lawyer is a, a great skill in itself, but it's uh, it's working for clients. It's, it's quite different to creating and, and and empowering. So it's very different to what we're doing. So nothing against being a lawyer and a lot of my great friends are lawyers, but it probably wasn't the best role for me and mm. investment banking wasn't the best role for Jeremy. So we thought well, our first business was a backpacker apartment business and not glamorous in any way, but it was our, real, it's our first foray into business of any sort. And I had a leave absence. I could have always gone back to Free Hills within mm-hmm. the first six months, but three months in, we, I told them it wasn't going back. Uh, and how did you make that decision? Uh, I think our, our criteria was, is the business going well enough to, to support us, essentially? And, mm-hmm. and it was. We could see the growth there. And we didn't have much capital back then, so we only had 50, 60 grand each. So we had to choose a business that had low barriers to entry. Uh, and that's what we did. So you basically would take out a lease on, like, an apartment and then rent it for shorter stays to backpackers? Yeah, backpackers or, or people... 
backpackers of the broader class, a lot of these people are here for sort of six, 12 months, mm. university educated, working reasonable jobs. So, yeah, technically they were backpackers, but in re- reality, they weren't hostel staying kind of. No, it was sort of a gap, I guess, in between the backpackers and the hotels for sort of yeah, medium so yeah. to short, and, and short also the, medium stay. And also, people, because people, they weren't staying here 12 months, probably couldn't mm. get their own lease. So, it was still that mid that mid range uh, of a very rentable, high quality people, mm-hmm. almost always, but who but just couldn't get a lease just due to commercial time reasons and then you expanded that business and spent a while we did we, we, yeah, we sort of grew one by one really it was, mm-hmm. it was literally we'd, we'd put the furniture together ourselves we'd put the uh, advertisements on the notice boards and in that cafe so it was very um, hands on mm-hmm. and we a few years later after saying that realised that, that the backpack apartment model probably wasn't super sustainable mm-hmm. uh, so we, we pivoted to a corporate apartments model, service apartments, but we still have that business to this day. It's not a, a huge business, but it's, a, it's been a good business. We've had it been going for 14 years now, yeah, which, right. which, is, which is good. So uh, as part of that, we bought and sold half a dozen properties and, and through that had our very first personal seed fund. We sort of somehow managed to get a windfall of a million bucks to mm-hmm. buying and selling these properties that we rented to ourselves. Uh, and that was our first sort of, the first cash we ever really had more than 50 grand and, and we could have sort of given it to ourselves and bought a house or we could have said well, let's, let's look for another business that we can just more scalable we're still young we're mm. 20 29 so we're looking for what's a, what's a more scalable business that, that can look at our first apartments business well it was a nice sort of cash flow generating business it wasn't really scalable because everything you need to do yourself so we wanted to find a business a bit more scalable nationally like even better internationally mm-hmm. and that's sort of how we came across our next business idea so, so we sort of pivoted from one to the next to the next and it was just ideas coming to us. We saw a problem. We thought, well, maybe we can solve this problem. Okay. It's interesting you say it sort of isn't scalable because I guess that's kind of what Airbnb created, right? Like in a slightly Airbnb different a way and becoming tweak. a platform. Yeah, maybe. Airbnb had a slight tweak and made the model a gazillion times better. So yeah. look at what we did. We'd rent the apartments, so we'd have the risk there mm. and we'd have to do everything ourselves. Airbnb is simply a platform. So yeah. look at, and that's why we love marketplaces now. Mm. So we, and that, not just because of that, but that's just one example of it, that Airbnb is just this beautiful business that – facilitates this market of win-win. So you've mm. got a person with an empty room or an empty apartment and you've got someone who wants somewhere and you've got hotels to charge for a lot. So you've got a, a market that was begging for desegregation and Airbnb just came and that's it. Hotel, hotels have been incredibly more valuable than they were when Airbnb started. So it's been a win for everybody. Mm. But uh, Airbnb is just it's a brilliant example of how a great marketplace and how great network effect business works. Uh, whereas ours, that didn't have that. So yeah. uh, certainly you get a real lesson on, on what... Uh, the Airbnb, what what uh, Brian and Joe did so well, and what obviously we did not very well, and that's just a contrast to, to in choosing the right business model. So, so you had the criteria. You wanted something that's probably less labour intensive, more scalable, and was the idea of a sort of marketplace for travel the, the next thing you came no, upon, no, or was no, no, there no, some was, gaps and slots in between? Quite a few years later, but so our first first thing we saw, I was in the UK uh, for about. Well, I think, three or four weeks on that trip I uh, met my now wife and also came across mm-hmm. our, our first sort of e-commerce business idea it's a very productive trip yeah, very productive. <laughs> all in the space of, sort of three and a half weeks but so I was in the UK London and mm-hmm. we, I was using one of my friends was using a site called Top Table which was essentially a combination of the entertainment book and Dimmy so mm-hmm. it's discounted meals uh, and you book it online so mm-hmm. it was a real, great user experience you get 20, 30, 40% off a dinner and you could book it online and have the call up so mm-hmm. it was a, you get ideas you get you get um, great food and you get it for, for a great price but this is a great business model we should do that in Australia so I told Jeremy about that and we actually started working on what we call uh, my table mm-hmm. so our version of top table top table was since been bought by booking.com mm-hmm. and then they merged it into open table but uh, so we started out there. so we had this apartments business still going fine mm-hmm. uh, we thought oh let's try this top table thing 
we think there's a real problem there that can be solved. Great for restaurants, great for customers, everybody wins and we just sit in the middle. So we started working on that back end of 2009. And then a few months later, Jeremy was in the US and noticed a business called Groupon, which was the first business to hit a billion dollars in sales uh, back in 2009. This happened. And nobody had done any Groupon models in mm. Australia. Yeah, we thought this is actually a really good idea. Uh, and the beauty of this business versus the my table business is we didn't have to build the marketplace. It was a deal a day. So you just need to get one deal, one deal, one deal, one deal, mm-hmm. and the customers should hopefully start coming. So we thought, let's put the My Table business on hold and let's do this Groupon thing. We, we called it Zoupon, so Groupon with a, with a Z. Mm-hmm. There's also, there also a, a Scoopon. So yeah, I remember Scoopon, 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 Scoopon. So it was a bit, a bit of confusion, but in the end, we, we sold that. And what sort of deals was that? Was that restaurant Restaurants, deals? days, or bars, everything? Oh, okay, so similar to Groupon, all sorts of services we were, we were and Zoupon, local business. We and, and we were... Before Groupon even started here, we were, mm. we were operating. Okay. There was a bunch of other businesses. There was Scoopon, there was Spreeds, there was Jump on it, there was Ufa. Mm. Um, most of those businesses are now part of everybody but Groupon is part of our joint venture with Catch, Catch of the Day. Mm. So um, there's a separate business from Luxury Escapes, but we own half of that business. So it's still going, but it just didn't. What sort of made you decide not to pursue it? Oh, we, still, we still have it, and we still pursue it. So mm. Guys sitting there are, are running that business, but. Um, what we discovered sort of relatively soon was the unit economics of the travel business are really nice. So whilst mm-hmm. the, the local business is doing really good business and Groupon are doing really well in the States still and Woucher are doing really well in the UK, uh, we, we, we were attracted by the travel business because they had a better, economics, better unit economics and they had bigger basket size. So mm. often the basket size was almost $2,000. So it means you could advertise a lot more to get customers and you're working with brands as well so branded hotels so they're really concerned about the user experience for their own sake so the, the, we thought the, the travel model made a lot of sense we over the years drifted more and more into that and then in 2013 we spun off Luxury Escapes into its own separate business so were you doing hotel deals occasionally and then when they worked and you saw the transaction size you thought let's double yeah, down so we, on we that deals.com.au at that stage and mm-hmm. we were doing hotel deals advertising the newspaper and it was going really well and then in 2013 we just started Started doing the same thing for Luxury Escapes slowly, and then uh, so Deal still does it and basically syndicates Luxury Escapes mm-hmm. offers. Uh, and Luxury Escapes started growing as its own entity and was organically growing from sort of zero to three fifty top line mm. in that five five and a half year period. Yes, yeah, so, so I mean, a, a lot of businesses don't even get to sort of. 3.5 or 35 million. So can you tell us a bit about the growth journey of going yeah. from zero to, you know, a third of a billion in yeah. top line turnover in such a short span of time? Oh, I think like anything, you need to be in the right place, right time. We had a lot of luck <laughs> through the journey. We, the benefit of having the, the local businesses for, for three or four years first was we knew what worked and what didn't. We knew how to treat customers. We knew we had to be really concerned on the customer experience and that's not just before they purchase but also after they purchase mm-hmm. so we're always heavily invested in the customer service team customer experience team which is which is really good um, we've also got sort of sales teams to help people buy but we, we always understood though that, that the key is making sure the offer is right and people mm. are smart and they respond to the right offer so we've got a big team that, that focuses on making sure our offers are, are right and I still work as part of that team in, in getting the offers right and approving the offers with the, with the sales manager so it's well, we're always, well, it's really critical the content on the site which is effectively our offers our packages our mm-hmm. deals is really good that's what drives the whole flywheel so there's lots of components to it from marketing to finance to content to customer experience which are all super important but it's driven by having that really great content so sort of the buy side right the ones uh, signing up suppliers who yep. are going to offer good quality deals and a lot of them international travel packages so how yep. would you sort of find them and then vet them against you know different quality yeah, well, to guarantee our, that experience we've got a team of 25 people who travel the world mm-hmm. speaking to hotels speaking to owners of hotels speaking to brands 
and and explaining how our model works. So the mm-hmm. beauty of, of Luxury Escapes is it's a win for the customer, it's a win for the hotel. So mm. and the way the way it's a win is most virtually all hotels don't aren't full every night. They've mm. got empty rooms. If you've got an empty room, you're losing money on that room. So mm-hmm. It could be hundred bucks, it could be a thousand dollars. Where, so we become a marketing channel for hotels essentially so we, we tell a hotel and this is borne out by, by plenty of data is we generate incremental room nights so mm-hmm. if you look at uh, online travel agents like booking.com and Expedia which are phenomenal businesses they, they largely uh, they're a distribution channel so they'll, mm-hmm. have, they'll be existing demand out there and they'll fulfil that demand they do an amazing job doing that mm. And you can argue the merits of OTAs or not, but mm-hmm. as a business of that great businesses. What we do is slightly different. We're a marketing channel for hotels. So hotels don't have empty rooms. Sometimes hotels might be 50% full. What we'll do is we'll go to what we've got a big database of customers, many of which have bought before, some of which haven't. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll speak to them and say, here's an amazing package, an amazing offer that you can't get anywhere else. If you buy it from us and for a very limited time, you can get this great price. So customers get an amazing price and we also curate and provide lots of detail and content. And hotels actually generate incremental profitability. So it's, what we like to think is a genuine win-win. And the hotels filling empty rooms, mm-hmm. getting lots of on-site spend and longer average length of stays and upgrades and, and all that sort of stuff that hotels love. And our customers get the world's best offer. So it's, it's genuinely a win-win. And we think there aren't that many businesses where you can actually facilitate that win-win. So what we've always been about is making sure our, our customers are super happy. And we've got a net promoter score of 74, which uh, for me, I think the MPS is, mm-hmm. but uh, very few companies have that kind of MPS. And certainly in the travel industry, it's mm. rare. So if you look at the banks, they're negative, <laughs> negative, and even great companies from the 30s and 40s. Yeah. So it's something we're really proud of, that, that something like 75% of our customers refer us to their friends, mm. 80% of people are mutual, and only 5% of people aren't happy or, or neutral so it's a it's a pretty unusually high net promoter score and something we've really focused the business on and so what were the hardest parts when you were getting started you had this idea you had again like you said a win-win but what was the hardest parts maybe in the first 12 months i think if you forgetting the the sort of i guess the deals kudo experience because we had our apprenticeship mm-hmm. in e-commerce there but probably just luxury escapes but the hardest part it remains is getting great content on the side mm-hmm. because whilst we know we make hotels lots and lots of money it's counterintuitive because a hotel's reducing their price. Mm-hmm. So most times the hotel sees, well, I'm reducing my price, that must be making me less money. But it's actually the, the reverse because we're filling rooms otherwise empty. And they've got high fixed costs, right? So you've it's got sort sun, of... You've got some cost with yeah, the room. So your, your marginal cost, be it the cleaning of the room and a, and a breakfast cost, isn't actually that high. Mm-hmm. And often you're paying it potentially anyway. So uh, the beauty of our model is that yeah, there is a lot of capital that goes into these great hotels mm-hmm. and there's rooms that aren't filled just to the nature of the nature of any hotel is very rare to fill every room every night. So when mm. we come in, as we structure a campaign around that, so there might be some dates that are blacked out if it's a super peak day. There might be some dates that have got a small surcharge. Either way, the customer's always a lot better off. Mm-hmm. And for the hotel, they're getting cash they otherwise wouldn't have, so it's profitable for the hotel. So it's, it is a genuine win-win. The hotel mm-hmm. has a great result. They make money. The, the customer get a better price on a package than they can get literally anywhere on earth, and we, we check it extensively. So when we just sit in the middle there facilitating that. Okay, so, so the hard part was sort of convincing some of the early hotels to... I think this day is getting the right package. Mm-hmm. Our customers are smart and they know a great package for an average package. Mm-hmm. So it's really important for us to make sure that we have a really good perceived value in the package and that the inclusions we're giving, i.e. could be massages, could be breakfast, could be dinner, could be cooking class, could be, could be a transfer. Mm-hmm. Whatever we're giving has to have real value to a customer and needs to be provided really nicely by the hotel. So at the same time, making sure that it makes sense for the hotel to be offering this stuff. So if the hotel's got two massage rooms, we can't 
himself out for massive cash. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we need to make sure it works for the hotel. And if it works for the hotel, the hotel's doing well from it. They'll treat our customers really well. Customers have a great experience and then buy again. So it becomes a, a virtuous cycle. Mm. And so, again, you have the, the best and worst thing, right? Rapid growth and success, which often can be the undoing of a lot of businesses. So once you had it working, you're off the ground and you had this sort of sudden growth, how did you manage all the sort of ups and downs of sudden growth? Um, uh, it's a thing, so thinking back, we things are always going wrong in some some way. Mm. Uh, but but ultimately, we, we like to think we manage. We've got a really good team here. Um, when when we have a problem, we, we just try and solve it as best we can, and we try and solve it quickly, and try and solve it as in the interest of the customer, in the interest of the client. Uh, so yeah, there's certainly been been sort of easier and harder times. I think it's one lucky thing about our business is we don't have to worry about cash like many other businesses because mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of we've got what's called a negative working capital so we, we get our customers pay us cash before we pay out hotels versus other businesses where they have to build the whole infrastructure and then mm. you get to start paying cash so three four years later and you have to raise money from VCs so mm. we're quite lucky that the model is cash generating mm-hmm. uh, and as we grow more and more cash generating so ultimately that's that's customer money is not our money so we obviously can't can't go and spend it on Ferraris or anything like that <laughs> but, but ultimately it's, it means it can stay it can sustain the business's cash flow because you're getting cash first. Yeah, and, I, and was that a conscious no, choice, no, or that no, just no, happened no, to just work happened, out well? Work out <laughs> okay. Well. And, um, and and so, how has it evolved over the years you've been doing it? Um, how has sort of the business evolved? And oh, I think I think if you look at the biggest evolution, is just the size of the team and the mm-hmm. quality of the team. So obviously, we always have great people working for us. But if you look at the quality of the team now and the leadership team, it's certainly the best we've ever had. Uh, as you get bigger, you can attract better talented people not that, not that our early people weren't talented but you just attract a, a sort of really strong experience type of person uh, and we've got a fantastic team now that many of which have been for a number of years um, and that's probably the biggest change but obviously our, our tech platform's improved and, and our relationship with clients have improved and the number of customers increased so you're sort of working on all different facets of the business constantly mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a bit of an evolution really Okay, and then sort of what's next? Like, what, what are the things, where, where are you looking to take Luxury Escape in, in the next sort of five to ten years? Yeah, I don't, we don't think sort of five or ten years out mm-hmm. because technology changes so mm-hmm. much, customer wants and needs change so much. Uh, we, we, we're a bit more tactical. That said, we've got a pretty strong 24-month plan of what we want to do. A lot of it's driven by tech. So there's a lot of new products we're all out. A lot of these depend on, on the tech platform being wrong. But look at the sort of key areas where we think we'll grow international is a big one so selling mm-hmm. to customers who aren't based in Australia so we've got a team in, in Singapore Hong Kong we sell to customers in the US, UK Germany, Canada uh, India so and obviously New Zealand so there's, there's a number of areas where we're trying to boost our sales so you've already started to sell yeah, in so those we're, we're still majority Australia mm-hmm. but we do have some sales coming from non-Australia but it can be 10% 15% some days so mm-hmm. it's certainly growing uh, that's one big area. Those international customers is was one big area. Then we're looking at what, how can we improve the platform and sell more product. So we're trying. One thing we're working on at the moment is how do we personalise emails to, to individual customers to make it mm-hmm. more relevant. So someone's always looking at Australian deals. Let's not send them an ideal Thailand because <laughs> it's probably not what they're looking for. We'll send it to them. We'll send it a bit lower on the email. So it's how do you how do you make the experience more relevant and, and rather than, we don't want to waste people's time. So we want to send people stuff they want, stuff mm-hmm. they're likely to buy. How do we get more magazine content in that sort of stuff as well? So how do we how do we just inform our not everybody's looking to travel all the time. A lot mm-hmm. of people go to the site just for 
because voyeurism is, and the pictures are amazing, the videos are amazing. How do we give people lots and lots of great content so mm. they can really enjoy the luxury scapes experience without buying? Because we we don't expect everybody to buy every time they come, nor do we necessarily want them to. Mm. It's how do they uh, get the most out of luxury scapes to to just have a, have a better life, which is which is what we're aiming to doing. So. Yeah, certainly the relevance personalization piece then we're, then we're building some other stuff like we'd love to want to be building flights and the nestling insurance and activities and and various different sort of add-on peripheral there's a whole package so it's like a one payment and the whole exactly. thing is all exactly. customised and bundled together yeah exactly so at the moment we're we're a bit different to travel agents who will sell everything to you. Mm-hmm. We'll just sell just the land. But we know that our customers also need to buy a flight, also need to buy insurance, may not buy a car hire, may want to buy activities. So there's lots of different things that our customers want to buy that we actually haven't been offering them just because we haven't had the ability to. So that's one big product in the team pipeline is what we call ancillary revenue. So mm-hmm. how do we sell more stuff to people to give them a better experience? So is a potential future aspiration to almost vertically integrate the entire experience, if possible, at a custom level so that someone can, from you, purchase the entire package but not be a you know, generic package like, like you said, it's already in the market but a really high-quality, customised package, not, not to that extent? It's not vertical in the sense that we won't ever own the insurance no. company, we won't ever own the flights, we'll just resell somebody else's. So... Um, there's a, it'd be very light vertical integration if that's how we call it but we want to try and sell the complete experience for our customers so like a vertical overlay I guess overlaying yeah. all the vertical channels selling all the products that yeah. we should be selling at the moment we, someone buys a great Maldives package from us but then they go off and buy that flight from someone else their insurance mm. from someone else their activities from someone else and it's, it's a hassle for our customers mm-hmm. and, and they also probably pay more than they should so I think the question for us is we've got this great customer base how do we aggregate our demand and get a better price for our customers so it's not exactly a, a new strategy it's mm. how do we harness significant demand to get better value for our customers and this is not just in the lab this is across the whole gamut of a trip yeah and what are the sort of demographics again I'm sure it's broad but of your customers do you find it attracts you know within the people who travel sure. a certain type of person yeah, or a certain it, type it, of your demos change over the years mm-hmm. historically we were sort of 50 55 plus mm-hmm. uh, kids out of home couple have done very well through life so far have lots of time to travel and have lots mm-hmm. of money that was our core demo initially but we've certainly got a lot younger we sell stuff that's much $100 a night mm-hmm. so luxury is different things different people so we're never going to sell something that's not nice but mm-hmm. it might be a, a, a lawn property for $100 a night which is actually a really nice property mm-hmm. so we, we probably average about 250 a night across all our properties mm-hmm. but there's a big range there's the super luxurious the Southern Ocean Lodges the Morgan Valleys the, the Sapphire Frasinets and, and these properties are a couple of thousand dollars a night there's a small cohort of people who can afford that mm-hmm. there's a much bigger cohort of people who can afford that $150 a night so we certainly try and uh, fulfil demand where it is Okay, and it's interesting. Would you say it's because maybe the older demographic's more familiar with the idea of sort of tour packages, whereas younger people are more used to doing it themselves, and then that well, sort of most shifts of that, it? Most or? of what we sell isn't tour. Most of what we sell is sort of what we call FIT, for Independent Traveller. Okay. We make flop and drop packages to Bali or Thailand. Mm. Uh, I think if you look at what we do... We are definitely getting much more younger people. Mm-hmm. One of the, the obvious hard things, if you've got a couple of kids, it's expensive to travel overseas. You're getting flights for real mm. and inspecting rooms. And so it's, it's sort of probably the hardest market for us is the core 30 to 45. Two kids, aged over eight. That's when it becomes mm. quite trickier. Uh, not impossible. We have a lot of customers are in, that, in that range. But certainly if you're 55... You're not working full-time. You've got plenty of money. Mm. You're in your house outright. You can travel anytime you want. That's our great customer. And we've got a lot of customers in that cohort. And they love us and, and, and we love them and, and it works pretty well. 
Okay. And again, like we're saying, in the future, looking to expand geographically. Um, so currently, are you offering hotels all over the world? Not every country, no. but, yeah. but certainly we, we specialise in Southeast Asia, so mm-hmm. Thailand, Bali, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore are our, our sort of hotspots. Uh, we sell a bit in Dubai and Maldives as well. Mm-hmm. We sell a bit in London. Obviously, within Australia is a massive market, probably was a number one market. So mm-hmm. um, we, we are sent a bit more around this part of the world because our customers are Australian, but we certainly mm-hmm. have, have European and US content. We've got Fairmont, San Francisco on the site now. Um, we've got a great London hotel on the site now. So we have quite a few sort of Eastern European and Southern European hotels. So it's, there's some great optionality for our customers who don't want to go to the same place every time. Mm. They want a bit of uh, variety. So we understand that and we try and mix it up a bit. Okay, nice. And... Um, I know you've written a book, Pigs at the Trough, which is a lot about the sort of high-end sort of corporate world. How have you found the, the process of becoming a bigger business and you're listed, the group is a listed oh, company we're, now? We're not or? listed, we're, we're a public non-listed company. Okay. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I've written a lot about sort of corporate excess and executive mm-hmm. remuneration and all that sort of stuff. And if you look at us, yeah, we're, we're growing. We're still a lot smaller than flight center and experience mm. looking at all those guys. But... We're a bigger business than we used to be, sure, but we, we still treat this business a lot like a startup, like a mm. family business. So certainly I've never even paid much. Sherman's never really paid much. Um, we've got a really good team in place now who, who earn market rates, but we still very much treat this like it's sort of our small business getting bigger with a, with a great team under our belt now is the main difference. But uh, so it's, yeah, we compared to what I used to write about, which is big public companies who tended to, to do the wrong thing by shareholders, uh, we are still shareholders tightly owned by mm. sort of 10 shareholders, three of which own 70%. So it's very much run, uh, obviously, for the benefit of, of employees and, and customers, but, but shareholders as well, first and foremost. Yeah, I noticed you've actually got quite an amazing output of content. I think you've written at one point as sort of an article a day or an article a week for a couple of years, yeah, which is sort of a, a big output for a journalist. But yeah. while you're even running businesses and you're still able to sort of maintain that, yeah, uh, content production is that something you've always been into sort of writing or yeah or I've, I've, you... I've slowed down a lot lately. I probably only write one and probably an article every couple of months these mm-hmm. days but yeah you're right I used to do almost one a day probably in the mid 2000s 2004 5, 6, 7 um, and I, I, we weren't working as hard on the apartments business so it was a bit mm-hmm. easier business to run <laughs> so as if it, well, this is pretty pretty full on so the, the mm-hmm. role here so as we've done more and more work here we've written less and less but but um, yeah, I've always found it pretty enjoyable. And uh, if I see a wrong beauty, because I'm not an actual journalist, uh, mm-hmm. I can. If I see something that I don't think is right, I'm not bound by the paper or an editor mm. or anything like that. I can just sort of write what I want. And crikey, uh, good enough to print most of my stuff. So uh, to a, to a reasonably influential audience. So uh, yeah, it's not something that I've, I've never, never had any journalist training or anything like that. But if I see something that I think is wrong, I usually try and point it out. And I think it's a you have quite a unique voice because a lot of people who are very critical, I think, of big corporates and, like you said, executive sort of excess, um, a lot of people sort of brush them aside a bit. It's like, oh, that's a journalist. Oh, they're not sort of in the business world. They don't understand business, even if some of their points are right. So it's quite unique to have a you know, very successful entrepreneur who also writes in, in a very um, accessible way but also very nuanced and critical and, and people can't say, oh, you're just a journalist, you're not a practitioner. You're like, well, you know, I'm running this $350 million turnover business, I've been there, I've done that and I can still point out these same things. Well, if you look at, if you look at politics, let's say journalism, no one really represents 
owners. So mm. Liberal Party is really the party of wealthy executives. They don't look up to shareholders. You've seen all the financial planning debacles mm-hmm. that went on the Liberals' watch. So I think Liberals, are, Liberal Party is well and truly not a party of business, not a party of free market anymore. It's a party of cronies and a party of uh, executives and, and obviously Labor parties. It's used to like the party of workers, which is, mm. which is what, what they have been. So if you look, there's no one who really these days unfortunately stands up for, for business owners. So if you look at a lot of my writing, pointing out, pointing out high executive pay is an anti-business, actually pro-business. It's just this is what the whole journalistic sector has been thrown up and mixed up and thinking that, that paying someone a lot of money is, is good for business. That's not good for business. Mm. It's good for the person being paid $10 million a year, but it's not a, it's not a free market wage. It's, an, it's, a, it's a wage being created by uh, uh, board of directors who who isn't acting on behalf of shareholders like they should be acting on, often on behalf of themselves. So. Yeah, I guess it's a sort of divide between corporatism and capitalism, right? But it's easy for them to all get jumbled up and that whole sort of business world to get painted under the same brush. Whereas, like you say, you know, you might be running quite a large business, but it's your own business. You're actually not taking a big salary. Yeah. But when people think of executive salaries, they think of these big corporates and then they sort of group it all together. Yeah, Telstra and ANZ and BHP mm. and, and all, all that, those kind of businesses where if you're running a bank, it's pretty. It's basically a pol- you're basically a politician. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got thousands of people working for you. You've got very strong senior CFOs and CIOs and CTOs and consultants and Kinsey and BCG and all mm. these guys around and paying a fortune of shareholders' money to get all this done. And you're essentially sort of notionally allocating resources. The chances are not very well. You're getting paid 10, 15, 20 million. There's, there's just no possible justification for a salary like that for for someone who's simply hired help which is mm. what CEOs are so but obviously if, if you if you own your own business you can be a bit more realistic and, and um, we certainly pay our good people well and we think mm. about market but it's nothing like the 20 million dollars that you get running a bank so um, anything above sort of a million dollars or maybe two million dollars a year it's hard to justify it doesn't matter how big the business mm. is that's And especially when they don't have the downside risk. Whereas if you're an owner, all your net worth is tied up in the business, your life's tied up in the business. If the business goes down, you basically lose the shirt off your back. Um, And and so you have all the skin in the game and there's no sort of agency issue. There's no agency cost. I guess the only potential downside for a CEO is reputation. And even that is questionable. You've got Elmer Funky Cooper who who was a CEO who got effectively resigned because under a bribery scandal, who writes op-eds in the AFR, luxury people. So there's almost no accountability mm. at all for, for executives. It's ASIC, basically, never tried to prosecute. If you look at the GFC, back around Alco, MFS, so ASIC went around the edges and did a few things here and there and a few bands, but, but largely did nothing. Um, so it's almost impossible for, for a CEO, no matter what the wrongdoing, to ever get punished for their actions. And the sort of public has a very short collective memory and sort of things often, Absolutely. again, in a couple of years, there's something different in people's minds and they've forgotten the, the recent past. Probably often they don't even know. Or, yeah, or, or they, or they just never they hear the details, um, which is why, again, your book is really good to examine all that in a lot of detail. Um, and so speaking of that, like you said, you feel that at the moment the sort of entrepreneurial, I guess you'd say, class of business owner, where they're still the owner, the founder, they're growing a business, you know, maybe one to... 500 million in that sort of where they're a mid-market firm yeah. um, where do you see the sort of future of those sort of businesses within Australia when they're not sort of represented on either side of politics well, the beauty of, of great businesses you, you don't need help from politicians mm. you just go and do it and we've never got a cent of taxpayer we've never got any grants or anything like that we've just um, put our heads down and, and tried to find customer demand and fulfil their demand in the best possible ways I think you always find great businesses in Australia mm-hmm. or, or 
or anywhere. Uh, it's just hoping the government gets out of the way and lets you, lets you do it. Uh, but there's, there's, there's plenty of great business. I'm sure there'll be plenty more great business in the years to come. Mm. Uh, we're a well-educated society, a society that, that embraces that now embraces entrepreneurialism when it never used to, mm. uh, which, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bearish on the economy generally. I'm generally always bearish mm-hmm. about, about <laughs> property prices and, and growth and all that sort of stuff. But I think there's, there's plenty of ingenuity in Australia and plenty of great business coming through. So, sort of, yeah, speaking on that, how do you sort of see the future of entrepreneurship? Like you mentioned, you're a bit sort of bearish on housing, the economy, but you sort of, you have faith in the ingenuity of Australians yeah. and future entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's still, still pretty easy to set up a business in Australia, to, to the government's credit, but the, I think if you look at the, uh, it's cyclical. So mm. whilst the economy is going well and whilst there's unicorns out there and whilst you've got Airbnb and Uber and all those guys killing it, I think that there's generally a tendency to be pro-entrepreneurial. I think when the economy tightens up and people go bankrupt and that, that may change, mm. I think the moment we're in a really nice sweet spot where where entrepreneurialism socially is is applauded, whereas historically it was frowned upon, because courtesy of this case in the bonds and those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's, we live in a, I'm, I'm glad that, we, that I can give a presentation to, to 25 25 year olds and a bunch of them will come up to me afterwards saying I work at Goldman Sachs I want to start my own business mm. I work at KPMG I want to start my own business so certainly 10 years ago that would never happen so I think it's great that people are choosing to be in value wealth creating businesses rather than say an investment bank which is a tax or mm. a which is a tax or society and so if you could do something differently and sort of wave a magic wand that would sort of help entrepreneurship in Australia, what sort of, like you said, the attitudes have improved, the politics, again, are sort of off to one side, have some impact, but not a huge impact. Yeah. You know, what do you think we could do better or change well, to make know, it better? I don't know if I'd change too much, to be honest. Maybe in tweak the tax system. There's a lot of change on make the tax system, but mm-hmm. nothing to do with entrepreneurship. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a much I think you really need to change. Um, I just you'd hope the government doesn't, doesn't get in the way. Mm. Um, and what about sort of, again, you're looking at different countries, looking at expanding. What about Australia sort of in terms of entrepreneurship relative to other other sort of big countries? Uh, well, I've had, I've not had enough experience in the entrepreneurship space overseas, but obviously the US remains such a hotbed for, for ideas and idea generation and VCs and capital. Um, What's happening in China? What's happening in India? Um, UK is great at the moment. Germany's been been fantastic for ten years. They're by rocket. So I think there's there's there is lots of opportunity globally, and and that's fantastic. We live in a world where people are trying to solve problems. Mm-hmm. The more problems we can solve, the, the better. Okay. And what's maybe a question that no one really asks you, but you, you think they should ask you? God, can't think of anything. No. Uh, or maybe you could think of it in terms of something advice you'd want to sort of give people but it doesn't often come up or people are looking in the wrong direction well, when they the, the ask advice, things the advice and, I give and I've got a couple of sort of gold, Adam's golden rules for, for people wanting to start a business up or, mm. or, or whatnot. and two rules are don't force an idea so mm-hmm. the best idea is the ideas that come to you and you see a problem and you want to solve it uh, so rather than sort of quitting your job, going home, just running out, notepad, lots of ideas, probably not going to get a great idea that way but mm. in your day to day life, keep an eye open if you see a great idea, that's and you see a problem that you can solve, that's the one you jump on. And the second sort of point, and it's a corollary to that, is once you've found that great idea, quit your job, put everything in, put 100% into it. Don't sort of do it as a one-hour-a-night thing because 
you just, you just won't. There's no skin in the game. There's no real risk. Mm. You need to put on the line. If the, if the idea is generally good, uh, which I, which I think it would be, put on the line, take a leave of absence, quick job, try and make it work. Otherwise, you're kind of wasting the idea. You're burning a lead in sales talk. Yeah, so sort of, I guess you're saying, so be make sure you've got something worth chasing but then once you have it and you're confident really do chase it and don't don't sort of half-ass the, the first part of getting the idea and don't sort of you know put a half effort into the execution yeah. either so the worst scenario is uh, working half days and writing down a million ideas none of which mm. are great and then doing it one hour a night that, mm. that's, that, that's the worst whereas the best is you know, in your day-to-day life you see oh I've, I've got I can solve this problem um, this is I'm going to invent a or a self-driving car because mm-hmm. I don't use my car enough or whatever the problem is uh, and then when you do that take quit your job and actually work on it properly rather than trying to ferry it through without without giving adequate time so yeah they work hand in hand both of Adam's rules um, but certainly had we never put 100% of the time into the original backpack or apartment business we would have been where we were today so. so that original business, you were a backpacker and you would struggle to sort of get accommodation oh, well, or you oh, had no, friends who backpacker, were... but we had friends. Friends who were visiting and... We were living yeah. in a disgusting place in, in St Kilda with all these really nice girls who were paying $100 per person per week for this shocking place. There must be a market to create a better version of this, which is what we did. And they were stuck between a hostel and so not being able to get a proper annual lease and, exactly. or a exactly. three-month exactly. lease and, right. and that was a gap you so saw. Yeah, the problem is... Great people couldn't get housing, mm-hmm. and solution is find housing for them and charge a margin for that. So mm. That was, and, and we quit our jobs and did it, or went for the way of absence and just quit his job and and did it full time. So we sort of went. And had we not done any of those, the business wouldn't have been where we are today. Mm. And then with the deal sites, it was sort of seeing. I guess it was sort of proven by the existing market and popularity of the deal sites. Yeah, we had, we had no idea when we launched if it was going to be successful or not. We had our other business we could always fall back mm-hmm. on. It was just a we thought we'd give it a try. Um, there was nothing to lose, really. Minimal capital costs, and, and it was a great, it was a great um, apprenticeship for us. Mm. Yeah, so I guess in some ways each sort of built on the next, right? Yeah, we in pivoted, order, exactly, to, exactly it sort of right. evolved in a bit of a zigzag. Yeah, exactly. to we pivoted, bring you where you are. We pivoted, and we, we built on the knowledge we'd gotten. So you think, oh, managing apartments is very different to managing five-star hotel mm. curated marketplace. Uh, and it is in many ways, but what doesn't change is use technology. What doesn't change is how to treat customers really well. What doesn't change is how to make sure staff are, are, are loving their work. So there's lots of, of things we learned that, yeah, sure, it's, made, it's not specific business to business, it's specific for business in general. And we're able to learn mm. that on the job for four years, five years in our other business. Yeah, I suppose even the original businesses, you're distributing content and information and packaging it in a Absolutely. way that's effective. So, again, indirectly, each one sort of led in yeah, a way it's, to, it's the, to the next one. Ultimately, you're feeling it, you're seeing where demand is mm-hmm. and you're feeling that demand. And you're feeling it through, through sales skill, through product skill, marketing skill. Um, so, yeah, we've just been really lucky that we've pivoted at the right time and have ended up with this business, which, is, which has been pretty pretty good for a number of years now so we're not the smartest guys by any stretch in the room but we're, we're, we're cognizant of when something's working and we're also cognizant of what we're not good at so the two sort of really important things is, is if something doesn't work it's not, it's not flogging that horse but when something does work let's, let's really pump some cash into it and in areas where you're not strong is that you know where you build your team and your capabilities or what do you do in the areas yeah we've got a much better team than we had five years ago now mm. so as you get bigger and bigger you get better and better people on board so look at the teams now the best we've ever had I'm sure will continue to get better over the years to come 
Yeah, nice. And it's always sort of a hard question, but is there anything you would do differently if you had your sort of eighteen-year-old self in a room and, um, and could have well, a chat? At eighteen, but I think if you look at when we started the business, we never took any VC money, mm-hmm. and we still haven't, so we're still bootle- uh, bootstrapped. Uh, but one of the, the interesting conundrums we always think about is, is had we raised money and hired some really good people to day one, where would the business be now? And there's a fair argument that had we done that, the business would be a bigger business, growing faster because mm-hmm. we invested in really good people earlier. And that happened, it took us a few years to be able to think we could afford investing in these really good people. So it's, it's hard to know in hindsight, but mm. certainly I think that the VC model of, of getting cash in early, albeit in a low valuation, but getting really good people really quickly is, is, a, is a pretty critical one. And just one final point, because we haven't covered much. What, what do you think separates those, those good people from the other staff? Like, in what ways have you sort of levelled up? Experience, um, I think for, skills? Yeah, I think for us, we really look for, obviously intelligence is important, but initiative, mm-hmm. having really good initiative and having a really great cultural fit. That's a sort of really big one. Someone who's, who's just willing to do things, take chances, learns, makes a mistake, but learns from it. That's the kind of people we, we want. We don't want people who are, who are lazy and slow and want somebody else to do the work. Uh, it just doesn't fit in with the sort of values we've created. So sort of self-starters who are all individually and collectively pushing the company forward yeah, and exactly. not waiting. Yeah, exactly. All right. Are there any sort of final words you'd like to leave the audience? No, no, I think it's been, been great. Hopefully, hopefully the audience gets something out of it. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.